You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, and my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing ASOS, Biffa, Entain, Hypnosis Songs Fund, Barrett Developments, and Dominoes. John, should we kick off with ASOS? Yeah, let's kick off with ASOS. So it's an online fashion retailer that we've covered before, but they had their full year results out this week, along with the news of the departure of their chief executive, Nick Baton. With full year revenue rising 22% to £3.9 billion and underlying pre-tax profit rising 36% to £193.6 million, with the group benefiting from lockdown restrictions on the high street. Sales in the UK were up 36% to £1.7 billion with 1.4 million new customers. While basket size was up slightly, selling prices were down due to an increased tendency towards casual wear. In the EU, sales were up 15% to £1.2 billion, but had slowed to 4% in the final quarter, and selling prices were also lower. With the well-known supply chain issues, that meant that stock availability was weak and ASOS couldn't serve the increase in demand in some of its markets. In the US, sales were up 21% to £466.2 million, helped by the sales from Topshop brand the group recently acquired. Global shipping and customs delays tempered performance. In the rest of the world, sales growth was more modest at 6%, coming in at £607 million, with a 3% rise in active customers. Group underlying operating margins rose 5.3% from 4.6% the previous year. Free cash flow came in at £35.9 million, compared with £258.5 million last year with net cash at £199.5 million compared with £407.5 million the previous year, as the negative effects of increased inventories and adverse working capital movements fed through. Capital expenditure is expected to rise to £210 million with the automating of warehouses and increased spend on customer experience and date tech. ASOS said that in the coming year, it expects sales to rise between 10 and 15%, with mid-single-digit growth in the first half after having had a year with exceptional demand and ongoing supply chain problems limiting stock availability. Moreover, pre-tax profit will be up to 43% lower, with higher freight and labour costs and returns normalising. On the news, the shares were down 8.9%, and in terms of valuation, ASOS currently has a market cap of about £2.4 billion, trading on the alternative investment market in the UK, and it's trading at approximately 18.5 times earnings compared with a 10-year average of over 52. Sam, what are your thoughts on these full-year results from ASOS and the news of the chief executive departing? I think the results are pretty good. I'm not particularly concerned about what they've said for next year. I think one thing I think is quite encouraging in next year is where they've said that they only expect sales to rise 10 to 15%. That's with mid-single-digit growth in the first half. So they are expecting revenue growth to re-accelerate. I think for the growth that this business still has ahead of it, a P of 18 is ridiculous. I'm not particularly concerned about the CEO leaving either. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't have happened. I would rather see the CEO stay. But I, I don't think a new CEO coming in 
significantly changes how I think the business is going to perform. I still expect it to grow at sort of, you know, 15 to 20% for the next few years. And I think if it can do that, at a fee of 18, it's very, very cheap. What about you? Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you. I, I mean, it's a company that I've liked, but I've been a little bit more wary of because it has historically traded at that sort of 50 times earnings, which is expensive any way you look at it. But no, I think, and I think some of the headwinds that it does face are probably going to be temporary. You know, the supply chain issues that everybody's facing. So I think if you can look past that and you're intending to hold it for the long term, I think it's an attractive business and it's very reasonably valued at the moment. But that's not to say that if you did buy it, it would be plain sailing. I think it's probably going to be a bumpy ride, but I think it'd be a reasonable price to to start a position really and it's something that i might well do so definitely one for my watch list yeah i think with like a company like this you don't there's no point trying to call the bottom because it's cheap enough yeah. that you don't need to catch the bottom if yeah. it goes down another 20 percent from here you, maybe you could have got it 20 percent cheaper but you've got it very very cheap especially compared to those historical levels that you mentioned before yeah yeah no and the same would probably be said for Boohoo too. I, I like, you know, them both may have come down a lot to a point where I'd probably, well, I may well start a position in both of them. As well, what I like is the UK sales, they're still growing. So they're at 1.7 billion, but that's on growth of 36%. I'm not entirely sure how big the market in the UK from could be, but I think it could be bigger than where it is today. But then the US, mm. that's only 400 million. So that's got a long way to go if they can crack that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. Not, it's not priced in a way though where they need, where they even necessarily need to crack it. That's what's quite good yeah. about it. Whereas I think before it probably was priced as though they needed to. Yeah, I know it's a different business, but if you compare it to say Fever Tree, if mm. Fever Tree doesn't crack US, its shares have a long way to drop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I like Fever Tree. I like the brand, but it's. It's so expensive and it is priced as though either it's going to be acquired for some huge sum or it's going to be cracking the US. Yeah, and there's no nothing to say it can't crack the US, but equally, I think well, it's priced to perfection, whereas ASOS mm. isn't. Mm. It's a business with a very, very good track record of executing. And it yeah. does have those additional brands now as well. It's got the Topshop brand too. So I yeah. think it's and it doesn't have for. it doesn't have a legacy bricks and mortar sort of that it causes its problems or, you know, some big pension deficit, which you see with other UK companies. Mm. And it's not priced too dissimilarly for some, from some of the companies that do. No, that's right. That's right. I suppose there are those sort of hybrids like Next, which are doing very well, but you'd associate ASOS with growth, whereas Next, uh, you know, much, much more moderated, certainly. But actually, if you look at the, the uh, ratios now, it's not that much more expensive than Next. No, Next was about 15. And Next, I mean, we both like Next when we did it yeah, a yeah, weeks yeah. ago. It's, it's a very good business, but I, I don't think it's going to be growing at 20% a year for the next few years. No, quite, quite. Good. Okay. A less sexy business, Biffa. Yes, so Biffa, for anyone who doesn't know, they're a waste management business. So they've not actually got any results out at the minute, but this is, we had a listener tweet us a while ago asking if we could cover it. So I put it on the list for when things were a bit quieter and now they are. So we're going to have a look. I can't remember who the listener was, but I know the name was Deborah. So shout out to Deborah. If she's listening. So yeah, Biffa are a waste management business and they are listed on the FTSE 100. We had full year results out in June. 
And then they since released a trading statement as well. So I'll just skim through those and that's probably the best way to just get an idea, well, to get a feel for the business really. So these are the full year results for the 52 weeks ended 26 March, 2021. And statutory leverage was 3.3x and bank leverage, the bank leverage ratio was 2.2x, which reflected another period of strong cash management. And said that leaves the balance sheet well positioned ahead of the very dollar acquisition with bank leverage expected to return to 2x within 12 to 18 months of completion of the acquisition. Statutory revenue for the year was down 10.4% to 1.042 billion. Operating profit, excluding adjusting items. So I had a look and the adjusting items did look to be fairly one-off. So I'm using these rather than the statutory results. So these are their adjusted figures. The adjusting items were to do with stuff like impairments and um, amortization of goodwill. So not really stuff that's actually affecting the cash performance of the business. So operating profit was down 51.2% to 44.2 million. Free cash flow was down 38.1% to 33.2 million. Net debt was had increased by 7.4% to 456.8 million. And earnings per share had decreased by 66.8% to 7.7p a share. CEO Michael Topham said, well, he gave the usual stuff that we've become used to about being extremely proud of how they've dealt with a very challenging year. And then he said that they're strongly positioned for post-pandemic recovery with leadership positions in their core markets a well-developed investment programme and exciting growth opportunities ahead, leveraging the group's unique position at the heart of the circular economy. Adding to the progress they made in the year, we made in the year the recent announcement of our agreement to acquire Viridor's collections business and certain recycling assets is another significant step for Biffa, further accelerating the delivery of our growth strategy. Since these results, the company has subsequently come out with a trading statement in July, and that said that trading in the first three months of the 2022 financial year had been well, well ahead of the company's expectations as a result of the faster than expected recovery of the UK economy since COVID-19 restrictions began to lift. Group revenues in the first quarter were 10% higher than during the equivalent period two years ago, so Q1 of the 2020 financial year, and recycled commodity prices are at the highest level since 2018. So if you then go and look at the last five years so 2017 to 2021 inclusive revenue's not really grown i mean i guess you can exclude 2021 because they have the 10 percent drop because of covid so if you do the four years of 2017 to 2020 revenue increased from 990 million to 1.16 billion and operating profit increased from 12 million to 74 million but it's it's very very lumpy so in 2018 for example it was actually as high as 62 million so it's not yeah, that just looks like it's quite lumpy generally. And diluted earnings per share, again, very lumpy. So it's gone from minus 9p to 12p to 7p to 17p. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a market cap of 1.14 billion and a PE ratio of 47.6. However, that is on the depressed results. If you were to use you the have adjust- a normal lot, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you were to use the adjusted 2020 earnings you'd get a PE of 16 and a yield of 1.9 percent my view is it looks like an all right business but I, I mean it's not got the best track record for delivering growth prior to COVID and I just think although a PE of 16 is not outrageous I just think there's probably better businesses out there what are your yeah, thoughts I mean, John? Yeah, I, I probably tend to agree with you. I mean, I'd, the co- company we covered last week, or was it two weeks ago now, next, that was 
15 times earnings and I'd say a much higher quality business that does deliver on growth. Um, so I probably wouldn't be choosing Biffa, but it's not it's not an outrageous valuation at all. And I suppose if you see that the UK economy picking up, then you'd think that Biffa would sort of follow that trend and actually 16 could be on the cheaper side for that uh, if you're if someone who's sort of pricing in growth of the UK economy. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing I saw that looked like there was anything wrong with it. It's just, it is just the opportunity cost, I think. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Right, so should we move on to Entain then? Entain, yes. So it's FTSE 100 listed gambling company, and it's the owner of Coral, Ladbrokes, Gala and Foxy Bingo, amongst others. They had their third quarter results out with net gaming revenue in the third quarter up 6% and online net gaming revenue up 10%. The return of the high street bookies meant that retail net gaming was up 1% and full year cash profits, EBITDA, are expected to be in line with the previous guidance of 850 to 900 million pounds. Also worth mentioning is the joint venture with MGM, which is called Bet MGM. And that has a 23% market share in the US sports betting and iGaming markets. And it's also worth mentioning that the group has recently been subject to two takeover offers, both of them from DraftKings. The first one was at £25 a share, and the second was a mixed cash and shares deal, which effectively valued Entain at £28 a share which is a 46.2% premium to the group's closing share price on the 20th of September. And previously, MGM had come in to try and buy Entain in January. In terms of the valuation, Entain has a market cap of about £12.3 billion and trades at 26 times earnings, compared with a 10-year average of 11.8. And it has a dividend yield of around just under 2%. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a company it, we haven't covered, I don't think we've covered before, but if, we've looked, if we look back at its revenue growth, has been fairly impressive. And I think perhaps what the attractive thing about the business now is the joint venture in Bet MGM. So you've had two US companies coming in trying to buy it. I mean, I would have thought, even though it has delivered steady revenue growth over the last five years, I'd be very tempted if I were a shareholder to take the deal of the, the cash and shares. I mean, ideally it would be cash, but £28. And I mean, I think it's pro- possibly uh, the market on, isn't expecting it to go through on the basis that we're still trading only around the £20 mark or £21 mark. But that, that would be my, my view on it. It's not business that I probably invest in personally for sort of ethical reasons but other than that I think it's you know it's a well-run business perhaps carrying a little bit a little bit high on the debt side but you know Sam what do you think? Yeah I'd agree it looks like the safer was probably not going to go through based on the share price. I actually I'm not sure I would accept it I think 23% market share in the US is pretty high and it's still only in like 16 states so I don't know how big, I mean, the US, they're only just starting to like open it up, aren't they? So that sort of thing now. I'd imagine the market's going to be pretty big. So if they can keep that market share, you can see why the shareholders want to hold on to it. But yeah, I actually also wouldn't invest in this for ethical reasons. 
I'd invest in tobacco, but I don't, there's just something about gambling I don't like. I feel like it's just, yeah. it's a tax on stupidity, isn't it, really? <laughs> Whereas I, I think with tobacco, I feel like people, I know you wouldn't invest in tobacco either, but I, I feel like tobacco, like in certainly in this country, people are like better educated and more aware of the risks. Whereas I think with, with gambling, because it's a lot more gamified and stuff, I mean, even with the advertising and stuff, you just don't see the same level of tobacco. I mean, you don't really see any tobacco advertising now, but like... Well, it's banned. I mean, it's yeah, got... It's gone through, it's like you know. Sky, Sky Bet and stuff, they're always advertising yeah. there's football well, stuff. It's, it's strange because it's gone from... Well, I, I suppose in Formula One, you had a lot of... Like Marlboro was one of this sort of iconic in Rothman's branding. And then, you know, that's that's been banned. But then you had, in football, you'd have alcoholic, you know, whether it probably wasn't Diageo, it's probably more of the uh, sort of beer and lager. Yeah, yeah, beer and lager, lager brands. And then that was banned. And now almost all, well, a lot of football teams will have a betting website, which I'm not sure whether that's better or worse, quite honestly, but I'd, I'd say worse, probably. Yeah. I don't like it. There's just something like icky about it. I, I can see, I can definitely see the appeal for anyone who's not concerned mm. about that, though. Yeah, and the UK is has a lot of listed gaming companies. Yeah, they've got some good <laughs> brands though. Into in the get in the gambling in, industry, like in tame. Yeah, they've got some good brands. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. So you, you, if you were a shareholder, you, you'd be holding out for, and that I mean, that looks like what they're doing. Yeah, I probably would if if I thought they were gonna. If I thought they were going to keep that market share in the US, I would probably yeah. reject the offer. Yeah, and it's it sounds like that's what's it, you know, reading between the lines, that's what it's hinging on. Yeah. But uh, it's also why the attraction of those big listed US uh, gaming companies has come into play, because they see mm-hmm. that. Hypnosis. Yes, hypnosis. So for anyone who's not heard, this was actually... I do have his username. So we've, we've had uh, suggestions from him before. So this was from Gav. Um, I'll just get his username up. Yeah, so it was at GavRS83 that asked us to take a look at this one. And again, this is a while ago as well. So I just stuck it on the list for him. We had a quiet week. So this is Hypnosis Songs Fund. And I'll just read from the website. Hypnosis Songs Fund is the first UK investment company offering investors a pure play exposure to songs and associated musical intellectual property rights. Our focus is building a diversified portfolio, acquiring catalogues that are built around proven hit songs of cultural importance by some of the most talented and important songwriters globally. So yeah, so they've got 138 catalogues with 64,098 songs and 13,968 songs that have been in top 10 songs in global charts, 3,738 that have been number one songs in global charts, and 151 Grammy-winning songs. In terms of the portfolio of songs they've got, 46.1% are pop songs, 27.3% are rock, 8.3% are R&B, 5.5% are dance, 4.2% are hip-hop, 3.1% are Latin, 2% 2% of country, 1.4% is disco, 1.1% is soul, and 1% is Christian. And in terms of the age of the songs, 2.5% are 0 to 3 years old, 37.3% are 3 to 10 years old, and 60.2% are over 10 years old. So, their 2021 annual report. So they've listed the portfolio as at 31 March 2021, and that just lists the different catalogues that they've got. So, just to pull out a few that I recognise, <laughs> my music taste isn't the most. I'm sure there's a lot on there that other people would recognise that I don't. But they have 
Kaiser Chiefs portfolio, which they acquired on 9th of December 2019, and they own 100% of it, and that contains 48 Kaiser Chiefs songs. They've got 917 Barry Manilow songs, 197 Blondie songs, 388 50 Cent songs, 153 Skillrex songs, 145 Shakira songs. <laughs> Those are the other ones I recognize, actually. And I'll just go to the financials. So for the year ended 31 March 2021, net revenue was 138 million, and that was up from 83 million in the previous year. That's mainly just because they've gone out and acquired more songs rather than because they're getting more revenue from the songs. Expenses were up from 41 million to 93 million, and operating profit was up from 41 million to 44 million. Diluted earnings per share were down from 8.13 cents a share to 4.72 cents per share. So if we look at the valuation, they're trading at, I know it's a fund, so it's not quite valued in the same way, but I've just taken the earnings per share in those accounts and have just divided by the share price. So that gives the trade at 36x last year's diluted earnings per share. They were down about 50% from the year before, despite acquiring twice as many songs. Funds, however, they, tend, they generally trade at a premium or discount to the value of the net assets. So this one's trading at a premium of 5.79% to the value of the net assets. My issue with using that valuation is it's very, very difficult to value the net assets. It's not like a fund where it's gone and bought pieces of businesses where they're actually like yeah. quotable. Who, who am I to say what hips don't lie is worth in perpetuity? Because <laughs> you've just got no idea how it's going to age. I don't yeah. even actually have hips don't lie. I just picked that as a Shakira song and the only one I know. They also have a dividend yield of about 4%. However... Oh, wow, that's... Yeah. Yeah, well, they must just pay it all out, I think. However, they charge a management fee, as they all do, of... It looks like the annual management charge is... 1% of the market cap. And in terms of performance, over one year, it's up 8.92%, two years, 17%, and three years, 17.85%. However, you would have also been taking that dividend. My view is it looks like quite an interesting idea. I think it's it's definitely a different asset class. So if you were trying to build a portfolio of uncorrelated assets, I think it's worth a look, actually. My, my issue is I just don't know how you'd go about valuing these songs. You know, because a 20-year-old song that's still getting played, there's no guarantee that in another 20 years it's still going to be played. So I, I just really struggle with it. Like, I don't, I don't think it's an outrageous idea if someone wants to just say, well, it's a different, it's, it's a completely different asset class to anything else I own. I'm going to throw a couple of percents at this. I don't think it's the dumbest idea in the world. What about you? Mm, yeah, I think it's just, it comes down to how you value it. And I think it's probably very, very difficult to do that. And this also is not the sort of fund that you'd almost expect to be paying out a dividend. You'd wonder whether they just, they should just be buying more songs with it, you know, and sort of putting those the profits back into the business or back, back into the fund, really. Yeah, um, those songs, you, you'd imagine as you get, I mean, they're not going to last forever. So as you get, you'd expect mm. to get a lower yield from each song each year, I'd yeah. thought. Yeah, and I don't know what the research process, like how you go about the, the type of, songs or type of sort of genres that they go about purchasing how, how the strategy works but no I think I just have a problem with valuing it and not really knowing how or you know that 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 would be probably where I get stuck and I might not go any further with it after that but it's an interesting idea and it sounds like it's definitely well, it's, it's doing all right 
but maybe one maybe one that I'll, I'll watch but yeah probably not invest in yeah I'd definitely revisit it and I think mm. what I like about it is it's just a completely uncorrelated asset class isn't it do you think even in the recession mm, people are still going to be streaming music aren't they mm. but it, I mean it, for example is it going to be how much is down to say your Spotify streaming and how much is down to sort of your TV you know revenue when they're playing songs and other they did give it, they is did it, give it, a, is it a bit down, like actually in the report but I have okay. to go back, to go back okay. up through it all and find it okay because that was what I was a bit like ITV you know it, it's very cyclical does that apply to this company well it might still be, I don't know it might still be cyclical but what what are those cycles like is the thing yeah as long as it's uncorrelated to the general stock market it, it's still mm. potentially be worth a look but mm. yeah, I, I don't know. I just think the majority of people's streaming habits aren't going to change in a recession. I, no, I, don't I suppose that's I suppose that's the difference now. You've got s- streaming, but I guess it depends on how much the revenue comes from the streaming and how much from you know TV and advertising. Yeah, and it's like say you've got like um, say you've got like a really popular Christmas song. Like everyone's still going to be playing it at Christmas, whether in a recession or not. Hmm. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult. It's very difficult to value. I certainly wouldn't make it a big allocation. <laughs> okay, so on to our next company, which is Barrett. I know we've been covering the house builders a lot, but Barrett they released a trading statement alongside their AGM. And for reference, Barrett is the largest of the FTSE 100 house builders, and they've said that they're on track to meet the full year and medium term targets. As given in last year's full year result, full year results, the group has said that the net private reservation rate rose eighteen point one percent compared with pre-pandemic levels. Twenty-one percent of the private reservations were through help to buy, which compares favourably with the fifty-one percent that they were dependent on last year. The groups also launched twenty-seven new developments and aims to grow the number of sales per outlet by three percent a year. And the group's private homes are 71% forward sold, with a total of 15,393 homes, including joint ventures, worth £3.9 billion pre-sold, ahead of the 15,135 worth £3.6 billion at the same point last year. The average house price rose to 344000 from 331000 last year. And the group has also purchased a further 3,735 plots across 15 sites and expects to add a further 18 to 20,000 additional plots this year. And completions are expected to grow by 17 to 18,000 this financial year. Barrett has over £1.3 billion in net cash and a market cap of just over £7 billion, trading at just under 11 times earnings with a price to book of 1.2, which is more or less in line with its 10-year average. And it currently yields a massive 6.4%. So we've talked a lot about the house builders on the show, but we do really like them. Barrett is no exception. Would Barrett be the one you pick, Sam? Or would you be looking more at Taylor Wimpy, Persimmon? I think of the ones we've looked at recently, Taylor Wimpy's impressed me the most. But if I were to do it, I'd probably go for a basket approach. I think Barrett would okay. be in the basket. I don't think there's any surprises in this trading statement. But I think the build cost inflation of 4 to 5% is interesting. Do you think that's going to impact them 
sooner rather than later. I mean, it, it is already, but they're managing to offset it with the house price increases. Do you think that's going to cause problems sooner I mean, rather than later? I think unless there are regulatory problems, I don't see why they wouldn't be able to because we've got an undersupply of housing. Mm. I don't think they're going to have regulatory issues because we've got an undersupply of housing. <laughs> they're just going to want <laughs> to build more houses. So I, I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know how healthy it is for the people that are trying <laughs> to get on the housing ladder. And I mean, that, that average price, what is it, 340000 mm. I appreciate a lot of these houses are in the South, but that's very high for an average price. Um, well, I, I, I don't know, Sal. I think it's climbing every well, year. Well, well. I, around, around Oxford, that's it's quite cheap. But Oxford's a different beast, though, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Well, yeah, it, but um, yeah, no, 344 sounds very reasonable. I don't know. Yeah. In the Northeast, it's definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alice for that. Yeah, and I, I suppose it, it does vary a lot between the house builders, and that is the an average figure. Yeah, I'd be surprised if that build cost inflation it starts eating away at the house builders' margins. I think they're still going to continue yeah. to have margins in the high teens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think as a shareholder or something, you know, like Unilever, yes, they'll be able to increase the prices, but I don't think it not not quite in quite the same way that. Barrett would be able to. I think I'd be more comfortable about the inflation if I was a Barrett shareholder compared with sort of Unilever, for example, consumer goods. Yeah. What's the valuation at at the minute? It's trading at just under 11 times earnings. I think that's all right, isn't it? For that yield as well. <laughs> and there's a lot of, you know, huge amounts of cash being generated and a lot on the balance sheet. Yeah. So you'd expect that yields to go up or some shared buybacks, perhaps. Yeah, I like it. I think it looks like a good business. Yeah. I, I mean, I think. The, last time. Yeah, yeah. And I think the same go, goes for a lot of the other house builders as well. They're all pretty reasonably priced at the moment. And um, things don't look like they're turning anytime soon, but you, you mm-hmm. never know. It's uh, You could have said that back in Jan- uh, January of 2020 after Boris has won the election. And they, they, because they'd had, they'd had a, a rocky road with the Brexit negotiations, and then it looked like there was some certainty. And I was a Taylor Whitmanpie shareholder back then, and I'd gone from probably buying it at about one pound eighty a share, and then it dropped down to maybe like one pound thirty. You know, and there's a lot of election uncertainty in the winter of 2019, and then it was up to oh, I don't know, two pounds twenty, two pounds thirty in the January when there was certainty had returned to the market and then COVID hit and it was down to probably close to a pound and now it's maybe about 160, 170. So <laughs> you've got to be prepared for the ride. I guess, I, I bet a lot of the investors though, they're investing for the income anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, I but guess I mean, the income has yeah. been fairly volatile as well because of dividend it, costs for COVID. <laughs> exactly, that's right. So I suppose they're paying you for that risk as well, to an extent. Yeah. yeah. When the, the times are good, they're paying it out as a dividend. Yeah, you're doing well. Yeah, fine. Okay. So, US Company of the Week, Domino's. Yes, it's Domino's. So we've not looked at this before. We have covered the UK-listed Domino's, and that operates in the UK and Ireland. This is Daddy Domino's, which operates in the US. So they have come out with their third quarter results, and... Global retail sales increased by 10% or 8.5%, excluding foreign currency impact. 
US same store sales decreased 1.9% during the quarter versus a year ago. The international business posted strong results with same store sales growth of 8.8% during the quarter. The third quarter marked the 111th consecutive quarter of international same store sales growth. It's not a bad track record, is it? Bloody hell, bloody hell, bloody hell. The company, that's like 25 years, isn't it? 20, mm. It's even more, like 27 years. The company had third quarter global net store growth of 323 stores, comprised of 45 net US store openings and 278 net international store openings. Diluted earnings per share for the third quarter was $3.24, an increase of 30.1% over the prior year quarter. Subsequent to the end of the third quarter of 2021, on October 12th, the company's board of directors declared a $0.94 per share quarterly dividend on its outstanding common stock for shareholders. Rich Allison, CEO, said, we are pleased with our results this quarter, with robust store and sales increases internationally, while rolling over our highest quarter of 2020 in the U.S., on a two-year basis, our U.S. same-store sales were up 15.6% over the, over the 2019 baseline, with our international same-store sales up 15% during that time, marking significant growth in our brand. We are proud of our franchisees who continue to focus on providing great products at a great value to our customers around the world. Revenues increased 30.3 million or 3.1% in the quarter. This increase was primarily due to higher global retail sales, resulting from international same-store sales growth and global net unit growth during the trailing four quarters, resulting in higher international franchise supply chain and U.S. franchise revenues. The decrease in U.S. same-store sales growth partially offset the increase in U.S. franchise revenues during the quarter. Net income increased 21.3 million or 21.5%. The increase was primarily driven by higher income from operations, resulting from higher global franchise revenues. Net income also increased due to a lower provision for income taxes, resulting from higher tax benefits from equity-based compensation from more stock option exercises in the third quarter compared to a year ago. Diluted EPS was $3.24 compared to $2.49 a year ago which represents a 30.1% increase. The increase in diluted EPS was driven by higher net income and a lower weighted average diluted share count, resulting from the company's share repurchases during the trailing four quarters. Um, they also gave a breakdown of the store count. So as at June 20, 2021, they had 366 company-owned US stores, 6,060 US franchise stores, giving a total US stores of 6,426. And then they have 11,631 international stores, giving a total overall of 18,057. In terms of the valuation, the company trades at a market cap of $16.5 billion and has a dividend yield of 0.83%. And it trades at a PE ratio of 36.67. In terms of the historical performance of the business, it is pretty good from the five years. So if you go five years from 2017 to trailing 12 months, revenues up from 2.7 billion to 4.3 billion. Gross profits up from 867 million to 1.6 billion. Diluted earnings per share is up from $5.83 to $12.39. So it is a business that's delivered. But yeah. I'd say they must be reaching, you'd think they're reaching saturation point at some point and the law of large numbers is going to start kicking in. In my view, it's just a fantastic business. It really is. I do like the business, but I think at a P of 36. I mean, if you compare <laughs> that to the UK listed Domino's, which we both like, UK yeah. Domino's is only paid, trading at a P of 20. So there's definitely a premium there. 
And UK Domino's has a high dividend yield at two and a half percent. So mm. I I wouldn't I I do like the business a lot. I've got no criticisms of the business, but I would not dream of paying 36 times earnings from Domino's. What about you? Yeah, I would also have difficulty paying 36 times earnings, but it has delivered and there's nothing to say that it is at saturation point. And if you look at it, the share price over the last 10 years, it's a 13 bagger. So it has con- continued to deliver it. I suppose it, at what point does that stop? And that that is, it makes you nervous if you're paying th- the 36 times earnings. Yeah, if, that, if it does slow down, then you're, yeah, you've got a, f- a fair way to fall. Yeah, it's not cheap. <laughs> I suppose there is, you know, it's in the pizza delivery and fast food business. There are other big competitors, namely uh, Uber Eats. I mean, that's the biggest new one that's come into the market in the last few years. That's probably, oh, I'm sure it's not yet profitable, but that must be a worry for Domino's and Domino's shareholders. Yeah, I I think it's going to be difficult for Domino's to continue increasing market share because they are just so big and so well known. Mm. And like you say, they are a business that have delivered. (laughs) We will see. Yeah, (laughs) we'll see. So, okay. Of the six companies we discussed this week, then ASOS, Biffa, Entame, Hypnosis Songs Fund, Barrett Development, and Domino's. If you had to pick one, which one would it be? I'm going for ASOS. I'm also going for ASOS. (laughs) Boring show. That was nice and easy this week. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.